to be with you, everybody in this room, everybody at all of our campuses, everybody joining us online. Uh, I've been looking forward to this a ton. I was gone in July. Uh, very grateful to our elders in our church that make time uh, for writing, which is part of my own sense of calling. And so that's what I was doing. But I have just been looking forward to being back so much. And I want to talk to you about uh, a little volume, a little book that I have called The All Better Book, where children are asked how to solve real big problems. Little kids come up with their solutions. Like one of them is telling people that smoking is bad for them doesn't work. What would you do to help them quit? Alexis 8 said, go to a smoker's house, pretend to smoke, and die. <laughs> Dramatic little kid. Another problem, too many people spend hours at jobs where they're unhappy. Give their boss some suggestions. Andrew, age nine, pay double and have a big tickling machine for unhappy workers. <laughs> uh, but then here's the toughest problem. With billions of people in the world, someone should be able to figure out a system where no one is lonely. What do you suggest? And then little kids come up with their answers. This is from Kalani, age eight. People should find lonely people and ask their name and address. And then ask people who aren't lonely their name and address. When you have an even amount of each, assign lonely and not lonely people together in the newspaper. Little kid with the gift of administration right there. Or another one, make food that talks to you when you eat. <laughs> For instance, it would say, how are you doing? What happened to you today? Max age nine. And I'll bet there's an app for that. I'll bet somebody in the valley does that. Or. Uh, this is from Matt, age eight. We could get people a pet or a husband or a wife and take them places. <laughs> Makes you wonder what little Matt thinks about marriage. Um, one more. Sing a song, stomp your feet, read a book. Sometimes I think no one loves me, so I do one of these. Brian, age eight. With billions of people in the world, someone should be able to figure out a system where no one is alone. What do you suggest? Some of you will have read in the United Kingdom, no kidding, this past year, loneliness has reached such epidemic proportions that the Prime Minister, Theresa May, has literally appointed a Minister for Loneliness to the Cabinet of the United Kingdom. In Japan, lonely deaths among the elderly are frequent enough that there's actually a word for it now, kodokushi. And they gained widespread attention about a decade and a half ago when a man, 70 years old, died 
And his body was not discovered until he had been dead for three years. His apartment rent was just being deducted from his bank account, and not until the bank account ran out of money did anybody find his body. And that sort of thing is common enough now that it has a name. Uh, in our own country, the former U.S. Surgeon General just wrote an article in the Harvard Business Review, Work and the Loneliness Epidemic. And he writes, the most common pathology he saw as a doctor was not heart disease or diabetes or cancer. It was loneliness, just people alone. He says that it's more than doubled since the 1980s, that well over 40% of Americans report suffering from loneliness at significant levels, and experts expect that the actual total is considerably higher because people are just reluctant to say, I feel lonely. More than ever, people live apart from family or apart from friends, and that's particularly true in the Bay Area. People do not move to the Bay Area for relationships. They do it for opportunity, money, jobs, education. Loneliness can be fatal. He writes that it's worse for your health than smoking 15 cigarettes a day, and it crushes the soul. With billions of people in the world, someone should be able to figure out a system where no one is lonely, and somebody did. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this will everyone know you are my disciples, that you love each other, not that you can out-argue anybody, not that you're so smart, not even that just love. Dallas Willard used to say God's aim in human history is the creation of an all-inclusive community of loving persons with himself included as its primary sustainer and most glorious inhabitants. With billions of people in the world, somebody ought to come up with a system where nobody is lonely, and somebody did, and it's called the church. Now, many people, when they hear the word church, they think of a place that you go or a service that you attend. But Jesus had much, 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 much more than that in mind. Not a biological family, but a, fa a spiritual family, but a literal family. One time he was told that his mom and his brothers were looking for him, and this was his response. Who are my mother and my brothers, Jesus said. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mothers and my brothers. Staggering world in the ancient world, which was a very tribal society. Whoever does God's will is my mother, brother, and sister, and mother. Whoever does God's will is my brother, my sister, my mother. Jesus came simply to start a family, God's family. Everybody's welcome. Nobody's perfect. Anything's possible. You might have been quite disappointed in your biological family experience. How many of you found your biological family to be a big disappointment? Don't raise your hands. Rhetorical question. Uh, that was never intended to be your ultimate family, see? God wants everybody to be part of his family, aches for it. Jesus died for that. That's what we are. That's what we're called to be. So over this next month, as we get ready for a new ministry season, we're going to spend some time together looking at what does it mean to be a part of God's family around here. If you want to roll up your sleeves and be a part of rolling back a tide of secularism and materialism and isolation around the Bay Area and beyond, what do you do? And what I want to focus on in the time that's left in this message is that word, belonging. Now, the New Testament writers 
had a phrase that they just loved. In fact, it occurs some 59 times in commands in the New Testament, and it's the phrase one another. Jesus was creating a family of what might be called one anotherness. And there are all these statements like, be at peace with one another, honor one another, wash one another's feet, Jesus said, submit to one another. They were serious about this in the New Testament. Admonish one another, speak truth to one another, be devoted to one another. See, this is a new way of life and a new kind of community. It's a family. This will change how people think about church. Often in our day, people will point to a building and say, that is my church. Nobody ever points to a building and says, that's my family. Might be a house where my family lives, but my family is people. Jesus never told anyone, go to church. He said, follow me, and then you'll be part of my family. Love one another. Now, as a church, the best, simplest, clearest way, because every church has to figure out how do we do this, the best strategy that we have to get people into significant relationships with brothers and sisters where they can grow because there are dimensions of transformation, of spiritual formation that will not happen outside of relationship, outside of community. The best system that we have is called life groups. And what I want to do is walk through some of the one another's in the Bible in this message that happen in relationship. And because you can't practice these, you can't do it much in a service of this size, if you're not in a group, I want to encourage you, get in a life group, get in community, get into relationship. And if you are, while we walk through these uh, texts, these commandments in the Bible, just think about, God, how are you calling me to one another at a deeper level with brothers and sisters in my life? So here's the first one. Carry one another's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Now, the law of Christ is this new commandment that he gives to love. The law is a beautiful thing, the law of Jesus. And the way that you fulfill that is by carrying each other's burdens. And this gets deeply into the reality of the spiritual. Spiritual burdens are just as real as physical burdens. And so many people around us are carrying the burden of their existence all by themselves, and it is crushing people. I read about a woman who phoned a friend and asked how she was doing. Terrible, came the reply. My head's splitting, and my my back and my legs are killing me. The house is a mess. The kids are driving me crazy. I feel so alone. Very sympathetically, the caller said, listen, you go and lie down and rest. I'm going to come over right away. I will cook lunch. I will clean up the house. I will take care of the children while you just get some rest. By the way, how is your husband, Sam? Sam, the woman said, my husband's name isn't Sam. Oh, dear, I must have called the wrong number. Long pause. Does this mean you're not coming over? (laughs) See, what's changed in our world is not the burden of health or the burden of parenting or the burden of addiction or the burden of failure or the burden of loss. Those things have already existed. What's changed is no one's coming over. We live in a world of unbelievable, amazing financial, educational, vocational, technological opportunity, but nobody's coming over. Carry one another's burdens. Now, this doesn't mean if you get into a life group that you have to be crushed by taking responsibility for a bunch of other people. In fact, Paul goes right on in this same passage, just a couple sentences later, to say, each should carry their own load. 
bear each other's burdens, but each should carry your own load. And you might think Paul's contradicting himself here, but he's not. A number of writers talk about this. Paul's actually using two different words. Load in verse 5, each should carry his own load, is, is uh, kind of like in our day a backpack. It would be something that you're able, it's doable. You can do this on your own. Everybody ought to carry their own backpack. You're able to. The word for, bol- for, for burden in verse 2 is a much heavier term in Greek, more like a boulder. You can't carry a boulder by yourself. We carry them together. We're made to carry them together. And it is a strange thing, but I promise you this is true. And this does get deeply into the reality of the spiritual, which is widely overlooked in our day. Somebody's carrying a burden. They're deeply depressed. Or they have a deep shame. They've got a secret they don't want anybody to know. They've got a diagnosis now. Something's happening with one of their kids. There's something going on uh, with them in their anger or their sex life or their finance. And you love them and they tell you. And now as you're with them, you have a burden. Often parents know a lot about this and, and you carry this in a real deep way. But when they know that you know and you care for them, their burden becomes lighter. I don't understand this fully, but I promise you it's true. And, and we're meant to bear each other's burdens. And together we can carry what nobody can carry alone. Carry one another's burdens. You can do that. Anybody can do that. Don't need a degree for it. Here's another one. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you. Again, we love each other as Jesus loved us. We accept each other as Jesus accepted us. How did he accept me? Just exactly the way that I am, warts and all, in order to bring praise to God. Because God loves it when we do this. When people get accepted, they say, man, thank God there's a place like this. God has planted the need for acceptance deep in every soul to be welcomed into the family just because you're you, to be known and wanted and prized and celebrated. I mentioned a few weeks ago that we have a new grandchild in our family this summer. His name is Chance. And last month when I was away writing, my daughter Laura and her husband Zach and Chance were with me. I got to see that baby every day. Every time I wanted a break from writing, which was about once every three or four minutes, I would just run out and hold that little guy. I got to be a part of the rhythm and the mystery and the wonder of life changing from day to day. I got to hold him while he would gurgle and breathe and make those little baby noises that are so unique and blessed. It's just like therapy. One of our elders said to me that to hold a sleeping baby is like honey to the soul. And by the way, you can volunteer in our nursery and do that for free. <laughs> you don't even have to pay for that therapy. And when little Chance would wake up and cry and fuss and whine and it's getting late and he won't stop, I'd just hand him to his mom and i get to go to bed and get a good night's sleep. <laughs> it's the strangest thing in any other relationship I've ever been a part of. Attachment and love depend on time and shared memories and, and, and common experiences and so. Not here. This life comes into the world. I've never seen this baby before. Done nothing for me. And I'm crazy about it for no reason at all. I'd do anything for that baby. Why? He's a great scholar of human development, Dr. Uri Brofenbrenner. He's a guy that helped to uh, begin the Head Start program, and so he defined a family as a group which possesses and implements an irrational commitment to the well-being of others. 
A family is a group that possesses and implements an irrational commitment to the well-being of one another. And of course, the key word is irrational. There's a wonder and detachment and a longing and a love and a caring and a giving just because that little creature exists. One night, Nancy said to me, look at this. Laura had texted her a video, I kid you not, of Chance the baby snoring. Anybody want to see Chance snoring? <laughs> Take a look at the screen. You have to be very quiet to hear it because it's just baby snores. I look over, Nancy is in tears, streaming down her face. I'm thinking, what's the big deal? I snore every night, man. You never cry about that. Never video that. Well, actually, she videoed it one time, but it, it was not an act of love. I'll just say that. See, part of God's plan is the church be a place of irrational commitment where we wonder, like we do with little babies, people walking and speaking and snoring and living just because that's the image of God, and mostly we don't see it. But every once in a while, through the gift of love, a new baby or falling in love or something, God gives us the gift to see it. And we live in such a different place, gang. I was talking to Dave Shields. He's a pastor of outreach. And um, I used to live in the Philippines. And he's talking about being here now, how performance-driven our culture is in the Bay Area. He said when he lived in the Philippines, which he did for a lot of years, if someone invites you for a cup of coffee, it means you're family. In the Bay Area, if someone invites you for a cup of coffee, it's an audition. <laughs> like if you're smart enough, if you're connected enough, if you're networked enough, if you're rich enough, maybe you'll get invited out for a second cup. But I have this life group. We met for years. And I've told them over the last many years, when I have not just felt like, but been a failure as a dad. When my heart is just crushed in a way that I can't talk about in a group this size, and you can't either. And they never shame me. And they never give up on me. They accept me. And gang, I do have to tell you this, we're a real imperfect church, but we have some of the great acceptors in the world. We've been around 145 years, and a real deep part of the DNA of our church, our old senior pastor, Walt Gerber, used to talk about this a lot. We are not a museum for saints. We're a hospital for sinners, just the way I am. And a lot of people never get accepted like this. And sometimes they might even kind of hang around a church. But what happens is they come to a service, and you know, they might sit through it, and then they leave. But they never get into a little circle of people where they can be known and accepted for who they are. Another practice that can only happen in relationship, uh, Jesus' brother James writes about this, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other that you might be healed. And this is such a powerful practice and this, uh, the integration of confession to disclose and then prayer and then healing go together. It's so amazing, when Jesus was with somebody, 
he would very often put a finger on precisely that part of their life that they most wanted to hide. With Zacchaeus, he knew all about that little guy up in the tree, his tax collector greed. With the Samaritan woman at the well, he knew all about a history that would have been so shameful to her of five different marriages and shacking up now with a guy that she wasn't married to. With doubting Thomas, Jesus knew all exactly about his doubt. With a woman that was caught in adultery where she was about to be shamed, as our culture will so often do, particularly to women, Jesus knew all about that and loved her and, and pronounced forgiveness and healing over her. With, with Peter, the greatest failure of his life, the deepest betrayal when he denied Jesus, Jesus talked to him directly about that. Hey, Jesus, does this mean you're not coming over? Oh, no. I'm coming over. See, when Jesus named people's deepest, darkest secrets, their biggest guilt and shame, it didn't end their relationship with him. It was just the opposite. His knowing their darkest secret and still loving them, that's what healed them. That's what made them go absolutely crazy about Jesus. We all try to hide because we want to be loved. But it's so self-defeating because, of course, as long as I'm successful at hiding a part of myself, I can never experience love from you because inside I'm thinking, but if you really knew me, you would never love me. To be fully known and loved is incredibly powerful. Some of you will know about this. This is part of what we have to learn as a church. When somebody gets into a 12-step program like AA, it is so powerful to be fully known that very often one of the results is a powerful sense of romantic attraction to somebody else that's in that group where they become known for the first time in their life. This happens so often, some of you know about this, that informally it's called the 13th step to fall in love with somebody in the group. And there actually is a rule against 13-stepping in 12-step programs. No dating anybody in the first year of sobriety because it is that powerful. Shouldn't we have a rule like that in the church? If somebody gets fully known in the church, no dating for the first year? No, no amens. Nobody's excited about that one at all. Here's the irony, guys. Jesus came to save sinners, the lost, wicked, messed up, dysfunctional, needy, greedy, weedy, seedy people like you and me. But there's something about churches when people gather on the weekend that kind of become the church of the immaculate pretender. And people wake up fighting, running late, screaming all the way in the minivan. But when you get to church, we're doing great. Job's great. Family's great. Marriage's great. Kids' great. Dog's great. And that'll kill a church. That'll kill a soul. Every sinner leads a double life. Sin is that way. It just is. How do we get free? Well, we can take... You know, some little steps forward at Big Church. At least don't lie. When we greet each other, can we all agree on that? At least don't lie. Like if it's been a bad week, at least say, it's a rough week. Or I got a lot to learn. But this, this one another, confess your sins one to another, can only fully happen with a trusted brother or sister in a little circle. I have a daily practice of calling a man who's been my friend for 40 years. And we do that every morning if we're both available uh, uh, each weekday. And part of that call is confessing sins and temptations and problems and fears from the day before. And then we pray for each other and for each other's day. I have no secrets before him. 
And I really hope if you're a follower of Jesus, you have a fully disclosing friend and confess your sins one to another and pray for each other so that you can be healed. There's another one another. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Doing that. When Nancy, my wife, worked at Disneyland when she was a teenager, they told her that the real magic in the magic kingdom isn't the characters or the music or the rides. It's the spirit of servanthood in everybody that works there. They said, if you cannot serve, you cannot be part of the kingdom. To illustrate that, they told when Nancy was in training about one person who had worked on the Jungle Cruise ride. Anybody ever been on the Jungle Cruise ride at Disneyland? Uh, And the most common question if you're working there is, how long is the Jungle Cruise ride? And so there was an answer you have to give if you're working there. The Jungle Cruise is a 30-minute thrilling adventure through the heart of the African wild. If you work there, you'd have to say that a hundred times an hour, eight hours a day. And one of the workers got asked once too often and was just sick of having to say that answer. So sarcastically, they ended up saying to this couple, three days. The Jungle Cruise takes three days. The couple got out of line, true story, went back to the Disneyland hotel where they were honeymooning, packed up their luggage, checked out, brought their suitcases back to the Jungle Cruise to go on a three-day jungle cruise ride, (laughs) only to feel like absolute idiots when they found out the truth. And the next day, there was a new person working at Disneyland (laughs) saying the jungle cruise is a thrilling 30-minute ride. Gang, if there is a single dynamic that makes a church great, I mean great, Jesus taught about this often. It's not the building, it's not the budget, it's not the preaching, it's not the music, it's not the programs. It is, it's when the church is just a family of humble servants. How can I help? How can I volunteer? Can I pray for you? Can I walk you over there? Can I do something for you? Can I shepherd a little flock of people and build into them spiritually? Are there some students that I could come alongside of? Are there some children that I could build into spiritually? Plus, then you get to experience God using you in a way that the Spirit of God has gifted you up for. Your faith gets built up. That's what makes a church a family. We're actually having a little gathering to kick off the ministry season for everybody who serves, everybody that volunteers in any way in two weeks at every one of our campuses. And if you go, if you're serving or thinking about serving, I guarantee you it will be great because you get a group of people with a servant's heart that come together to get vision and all fired up for a year of serving as a church. There is nothing like being a part of a family like that. And if you're serving... I hope you'll be there. If you're not, I hope you'll think about it. If you're a follower of Jesus and a part of it, that's part of what it means to be in the family. And then uh, one other, one another, greet one another with a holy kiss. And the idea here is not just say hi. The idea here is to develop relationships of affection, of attachment that actually gets named, that actually gets expressed in, in whatever cultural ways are appropriate. Let the other person know. When people come into that family, Paul loved this so much, he actually uses this four times in four different letters. This is kind of interesting. Uh, because of his work, the Apostle Paul was on the road constantly. If you're a Bible person, you might know about that. 
Um, Roman roads made for unprecedented mobility in the ancient world. Uh, there was an infrastructure that had never existed before, and Paul was leveraging that infrastructure for the service of the gospel. And you might think that Paul would say, therefore, I won't try to put down relational roots. Why get attached to people if you're just going to be on the move all the time? And I say that because I'll hear that a lot around here. People face the same thought. This is a real transient place. There's a lot of mobility. I might move. Other people in my group might move away. Is it worth it to go through getting attached to other people? Now, I, Paul would say, man, it's actually just the opposite. It's mobile people, especially, who need to be real intentional about putting down relational roots. And Paul grew deeply attached to his brothers and sisters all around the Mediterranean world. And again, he was leveraging technology in his day. Letter writing was available to him in ways that it had never been in the history of the human race before. And he used that to stay connected to people. And that's why we have so many of the scriptures, the New Testament that we have. And of course, we have new forms of technology that God has been given us. And if you don't believe Paul, here's a story from our own church. Take a look. I'm a travel nurse. I get an assignment with a hospital that lasts usually three months. As we were doing that, we were able to travel all over the country to a different city for three months at a time. Three assignments in, we ended up just south of San Francisco at Menlo. Every time we moved to a place, it was a high priority to find a new church, basically as quickly as possible, if we wanted to have any friends, any social life whatsoever. We basically had to find a church to do that. From that, we formed a group. We could kind of go deep really quickly when you all share something in common, like your faith, or just wanting to you know, share a rhythm of getting together, even just for community's sake. I think getting into a group, like the one we were able to get into at Menlo, was integral. That's part of why, we, why you go to church at all, is to be known. Otherwise, you can just float in and float out, eat a donut, grab some coffee, listen, and then leave. So this kind of really plugged us in and helped us feel known. I mean, obviously we're not there in person and hanging out like on a weekly basis, face to face, but we still keep in touch. Like we're keyed in, we know what's going on in each other's lives. Even in a city on the other side of the country, I mean, we have people that we know, so if we were ever in the area, we could give them a call. and We'd pick up right where we left off. We were able to give and kind of like form a, a group and get to know folks that we wouldn't have naturally run into, but Menlo put us together and we were like a family. <laughs> we're also the Hello, you staff. How's the nurse over there on the East Coast? It's fun. Yeah. yeah. My hospital is awesome. I love it here. Do you guys have any like highlights from the past few months? Normally, it takes time to get to know someone so that you can love them. Where if, if you don't know someone very well, it's like, can you really love them that well? So knowing that we were gonna live in places and go to a church for only three months, that was the question. It's like, can we receive and be loved and give love right away? 
I think our time at Menlo, that was, of all the places we've been to, the number one place where that was true. We have a highlight for you guys. Oh my gosh. Hello. What is that? We're pregnant. <laughs> All right. Love you guys. Yeah, love you. Bye. Good to see you. And those are just real people. They are not actors, although they look kind of like actors, don't they? But here's the thing, whether you look like an actor or you don't like the way you look at all, whether you've just found out you're going to have a baby and you need somebody to celebrate with you, or you keep not being able to have a baby and you need somebody to anguish with you, or you've lost a baby and you need someone to suffer with you, I promise you, the people around you are carrying boulders that you don't know. And we were not made to carry them by ourselves. You were not made to. And so Jesus started this thing called the church. And you need it and other people need you. So if you don't belong yet, I hope you'll get into a little life group. Uh, we want to make it as easy as possible. If you're looking for a, uh, a simple, non-committal first step, we have this time-limited class. It's called Starting Point, and you can begin there. Uh, if you want, they can help you get into a little triad group, so you can just see what is this like. Uh, maybe God would prompt you to shepherd a little flock like that, to lead. You know, the people who lead life groups are really the ones that pastor and shepherd our congregation. With billions of people in the world, somebody should think of a system where nobody is lonely. And somebody did, and his name was Jesus, and the cost was a cross, and the place is a church, and the secret is love. Would you pray with me? And I want to invite you to do this. Um, you don't need to feel real free, but it may be that you're sitting next to somebody who has carried or is carrying a burden right now. And this is family. And nobody should come to family and be alone, feel alone, leave alone. So if you just want to grab somebody's hand or put an arm on their shoulder, again, feel great freedom, no pressure to do this. If it's somebody that you don't know, just as God leads, but if there's a way that you want to express just with your body, you are not alone. You are not carrying that boulder alone. You don't carry that guilt alone. You don't carry that hurt alone. I'm with you. I got you. Oh, God. We each of us come to that place where we cannot carry our lives by ourselves. We cannot see the truth about ourselves. We cannot see the reality of our sin. 
or the need for repentance and forgiveness and healing. Only together. Father, we pray that you would pour out grace to do what we cannot. And make this group a family. Your family. Jesus' brothers and sisters. I ask in particular, God, that anybody who's hurting today would not leave here alone, would not leave here carrying their burden by themselves. Make a way. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.